Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to Redefining Success and Finding Mastery with Dr. Michael Gervais. Dr. Michael Gervais is a high-performance psychologist working with some of the best in the world, training the mindset, skills, and practices essential to pursuing and revealing one's potential. In fact, throughout his career, he has pursued a key question. What is the common thread that connects how the greatest performers in the world use their minds to pursue the boundaries of one's human potential? His clients include world record holders, Olympians, internationally acclaimed artists and musicians, MVPs from every major sport, and Fortune 100 CEOs. He is a published, peer-reviewed author and recognized speaker on optimal human performance. He is the co-founder of Compete to Create, a digital platform that helps people become their best through mindset training and coaching. Current clients include Microsoft, AT&T, Amazon, among others. He's also the host of the Finding Mastery podcast that takes you inside the rugged, high-stakes environments of those on the path of mastery. Past guests include Los Angeles Lakers head coach Luke Walton, Thrive Global CEO Ariana Huffington, FUBU founder Damon John, Mercedes-Benz Formula One owner Toto Wolff, Microsoft CFO Amy Hood, Seattle Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll, among many others. He received his undergraduate degree from Loyola Marymount University and completed his PhD while studying under the father of American applied sports psychology, Dr. Bruce Ogilvie at San Diego University. Thanks so much, Michael, for joining us today. I am really looking forward to learning a lot. It's great to be with you. Thank you for including me. I'm always curious, and I'd love to start with just how did you get into this space? And I know this space, as we look at it, has evolved and changed over the years, but maybe you'll give us just a little bit of your high-level journey. It started when I was young. When I was 15 years old, I was a young athlete that was okay. Surfing was my sport that I was most attracted to. There's two types of surfing. There's free surfing, and then there is competitive surfing. Free surfing is quote unquote hardcore. You go do the thing. You don't talk about it. You just put yourself in a high stakes, high risk environment, and you do it for the enjoyment of it. There's no bragging. Like I said, competitive environments are completely different where there's judges, there's critics, there's people scoring, there's fans, there's the whole thing. I couldn't make the transition. I was good in free surfing. And then I was an absolute shell of myself in competitive surfing. As a 15-year-old kid, it was perfect conditions. It was about head high waves, which is super fun, glassy. There was only three people out in the water. And normally this peak that I was at, this beach I was at, has about 25 to 35 people out. And so it's super scrappy, if you will, to get a wave. So it's ideal conditions. And one of the competitors paddles by me. He was older than I was. And he says, Gervais, I see you surfing out here every day. You just got to stop worrying about all the things that could go wrong. And then he paddled away. And I sat there for a moment and I said, how does he know? 
how does he know that I'm obsessing right now with all the things that could go wrong in this heat, in this competition? Like a good competitor, he didn't give me the answer. I said, well, if that's how I'm feeling and that's how I'm thinking, let me see if I can flip it around. And I just started thinking as a 15-year-old, completely and literally wet behind the ears kid, I said, well, let me start thinking about what could go well. And it forever changed me. I didn't know there was a discipline called psychology. Nobody in my family went to college. I was literally out on the frontier exploring what is this academic world beyond high school. And I found the discipline of psychology. And I instantly said, this makes sense to me. Short story getting a little bit longer here is that I found my way through a bachelor's degree in psychology, loved it, went on to a master's degree in psychology and couldn't stand it. So I dropped out second semester in traditional psychological training because I found that I didn't want to study dysfunction. I didn't want to study suffering. That was the medical model that was bleeding into the psychological training, which is that we're going to study disorders and dysfunction, if you will. One of my mentors at that time said, Mike, I didn't think you were going to make it in that part of the discipline, but did you know there's this emerging field called sports psychology? I said, what? And he said, yeah, it's the study of excellence. I said, sign me up. Was it always sports psychology was always more the study of excellence? Yeah. Sports psychology was born out of trying to figure out how the extraordinaries work from the inside out. Like most emerging disciplines, you take small case studies and you study them, and then you turn it into eventually double-blind placebo studies. But that takes time. Eventually, you turn it into meta-analyses where you're looking at large groups of studies over time. It started with case studies, which is like, let's study the best in the world. And then there started to be some streams and themes that developed from that. And that was the beginnings of the field. I loved it. And I think it's one of the more beautiful, complicated, relevant, and important sciences in the world right now. Not that other scientific investigations are not important, but I find this one to be beautiful and complicated. I think that's fantastic. And you've pursued it since then, both for individuals, for teams, in the sports world, but also in the business world, it sounds like, and that's clearly needed. You talk about the themes and streams. What is the latest thinking or what is your particular framework or a paradigm, something that we can hold on to as we talk about this? Let me just frame it quickly and then I'll give you a framework that I found to be important. My first part of my adventure in this discipline of the psychology of excellence, sport and performance psychology, because that's what most people suggested, that this is where your profession will end you in an academic institution in the hallways. So I was teaching it for one or two semesters, and I said, "Mm -mm, I got to live it. This is the application of the psychology of excellence that I want to share with you. To live it, I come from adventure and action sports and high stakes environments where if you make a mistake, there's a high chance of injury. So I needed to get into the environments that were pure, meaning that you had to have a command of yourself. You had to have a full command of your craft, a command of your body, and a command of your mind to do well. Those were the working laboratories. And I can give you lots of examples of what I mean by that. But those were the working laboratories for me for 10, 15 years. And then I found myself for the last nine years with an NFL franchise working inside that organization to help with individual excellence, team excellence, and cultural excellence. About halfway through that journey, the head coach, Pete Carroll from the Seattle Seahawks, he says, Mike, we got to share what we're doing here. Do you think anyone outside of sport would be interested? So we had the opportunity to sit down with Satya Nadella, 
the CEO of Microsoft. He was about a month into his job as the CEO. He says, I love what you're doing and culture is really important to me. And the psychology of excellence is really important. So he supported us incubating a pilot study inside his organization. Six years later, it's turned into this model that I'll share with you. Just inside of Microsoft, we've trained around 50,000 people at eight hours a person on how to train their mind so that they can be their very best. And it's not more complicated than that. There's three things you can train. You can train your craft, you can train your body, and you can train your mind. World's best are not leaving the mind up to chance. So why should we? Here's this very simple model. There's five main factors that we work from. And under each factor, there's a set of practices that would support each factor. So the first factor is self-discovery. To really know who you are. And that is not like one session, you sit down and you say, I know who I am. There's an arc to this, a lifelong arc. But we start the process with best practices to know yourself better. And then we help you train mental skills. Confidence is a skill, which means you can get better at it. Being calm is a skill. Being deeply focused is a skill. Knowing how to trust yourself is a skill. So we walk through how to train those skills. And then we help people in the third factor, which is psychological framing. How do you make sense of the world around you? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Do you have a sense of passion in your life? How do you explain how you fit in the world? That's all psychological framework. And we help build that out for folks. Then we install, to use a tech term, we install a set of recovery practices in this high stress, high paced, pressure packed world that we're living in. I was astonished that in the business world, I don't know how people are doing it. So coming from elite sport, people would be surprised that we spend much more time talking about the science and art of recovery than you might think. In business, it's almost non-existent. There's people that are like, listen, I'm trying to get my sleep and I'm trying to eat well and I'm working on my nutrition. But as a formal structure, it's oftentimes not in place or near non-existent. So it's left to the individual to do as extra work, which in elite sporting franchises, that is not how it works. We're sharing best practices for recovery from a organizational standpoint. And then the fifth factor is mindfulness. And it's the golden thread that runs through all of it, which is the practice of increasing awareness, the practice of refocusing, the practice of wisdom. Those are the five factors, self-discovery, mindset skills, psychological framework, recovery, and mindfulness. There's clearly a lot to learn, maybe across both, but clearly there's a lot to learn in the business organizational world from sports psychology and this framework that you shared. I'd love to probe on recovery while you just mentioned it. I was just on this morning with a group of high potentials in an organization doing a career workshop. And one of the big themes that came through this morning, to your point is, why don't they do recovery at all? Why don't they believe it? Is because they don't put themselves first. They don't prioritize. They feel guilty when they do and think that it's not okay to block time to get out of firefighting. And even that's not recovery, right? To your point, there's a mindset that comes with that high testosterone, he-man, work hard and just gut through it. It was shocking to me in the context that we are in, how prevalent that still is. The modern work experience is in the midst of a paradigm shift. It is a shift that started in elite sport and performance and has more recently moved into enterprise business. Leading edge businesses are moving away from an extraction model to a performance model that unlocks potential. 
the extraction model was built on the back of the Industrial Revolution, where humans were bodies, headcount. You still hear that word now. It's so disparaging. And there are a cost in your SGNA. That's right. It's a cost. The progressive businesses are moving from the extraction model to the unlocking model because we've been on this thought for a long time that there's untapped capabilities inside of people. And I bet you know that for yourself, that there's so much more to grow. There's so much more that you have to offer. The best business leaders are doubling down, tripling down on the psychology and the practice of psychological principles to help unlock. There's a subtlety here. It's not the unlock so that this company will make more money. Well, that is the shared agreement that we have. But the unlock in its pure sense is there is meaning and purpose and there is a quality of life while people are in this shared vision together, this business organization together that matters. It's a remarkable shift that's taking place. And I point to leaders like Satya Nadella that have their arms around this pulse and are actually taking action in a meaningful way to do it. I have been privileged and um, incredibly grateful to work with them on this paradigm shift that's taking place. All that being said, rather than trying to squeeze more out of an exhausted workforce, this new paradigm shift is asking questions like, how can I give my colleague or my direct report the inner tools and resources that they need to flourish? So it's a different questioning, not am I getting my money's worth, but how can I help unlock? And I believe that this is how we will measure great leaders in the future. This is my life passion. So I really can't stop talking about what those practices and principles are. And I'm happy to share as much as I possibly can with you. My own sense, and I'm going to guess you'll agree, is those who can really capture this learning will really win. And they're really going to separate themselves. I think we're at this moment of time. They're going to be those who really get it and move ahead and some who just can't pivot. And to your point, which is tying it back to recovery, I just wanted to frame that there's this paradigm shift that's taking. In the extraction model, we don't care about recovery. That's actually a cost and it's taking time away. And next human up. You burn out, get out. You're fatigued and can't produce, time to get up. And that is such an old archaic model. There's no humanness in it. There's three companies that are emerging right now. Some companies are full on about they understand the value of unlocking from a human perspective and also from a productivity standpoint. Because we know from a psychological standpoint, people that understand meaning and purpose in the work that they do, they understand the impact that they're having to the larger mission of the company, then they end up bringing their whole selves to work. That is far different than a 38% engagement rate that most companies are reporting. <laughs> Absenteeism and all those other things start to change when you understand the psychology of internal drive and when you understand the psychology of purpose and how to make that real. The unlocking model recognizes that people are experiencing high stress in life and for lots of reasons, we have not prepared them to have the psychological skills to meet the demands of stressful environments. I'll be bold here for just a moment. The extraordinary and I've had a front row seat to many different venues of extraordinary. One, it does not happen alone. We need each other. Nobody does the extraordinary alone. Even individual athletes and contributors, there's a team that sits with them or has partnered with them. So one, we need each other. Relationships matter. Two is the balance between work and life is a mythical ridgeline. That is the way of the dodo. That is not the balance we're looking for. We're looking for a balance between 
recovery and stress, the right recovery practices to meet acute stress. And when I say acute stress, that's a very technical term to meet an alarm phase, to meet something that has great challenge in it. And if we don't have recovery practices, we walk into those environments with half filled buckets. We walk into those environments where we are already behind the eight ball because we're fatigued, we're agitated, we're easily frustrated. We come in with anxiety. The stressful environment just makes it worse. So recovery practices are materially important to do at scale with people that you want to unlock their potential. There's a whole suite of psychological skills like knowing the skill of being calm, knowing the mechanics of being confident so that you can walk into a room, your shoulders are dropped, you look forward to the challenge because you know that you have the skills to manage it. You can pivot and adjust and be agile. Companies want to be agile right now. Well, you need a workforce that is psychologically agile for the company to be agile. Psychological agility is a trainable skill. So you work on training the mind so that your organization is healthy and can be agile and respond well to external conditions that are demanding. In elite environments, sporting environments, let's call it 20 years ago, they valued the mind. I can't find an elite coach or athlete or performer in the arts that doesn't nod their head up and down to the value of the mind. And they'll even say things like, oh, at this level, it's 90% mental. And then the follow-on question is, okay, if it's 90% mental, what percentage of your week are you training the mind? And they look and they go, what do you mean? That was like 20 years ago when I first started in this industry. And now there's full-time sports psychologists in just about every organization. The progressive organizations are taking time in their schedule to infuse psychological skills training. In business, there's a Fortune 50 company that we're spending time with that before their meetings begin, so let's say we've got a 50-minute meeting, the first five minutes of their meeting, they'll do some chit-chat. Hey, how's everyone doing? Oh, good. Did you see that game over the weekend or how are the kids or whatever? There's that connectivity, chit-chat stuff. And then the leader goes, okay, let's get this meeting started. I want everyone to take mute off. We're going to do a three-minute meditation because we got a lot to do today. I want to make sure that we're focused, we're together, and we're fully grounded and present. You ready? Okay, here we go. That leader will either press play on a three-minute meditation or a five-minute meditation, or just say, I want you to focus on your breathing for the next three to five minutes, or they'll lead it. They will narrate it. You say, oh my gosh, I could never do that. My organization isn't ready for that. You're probably right. Because there's work you have to do to prepare people to know how to train their mind, to know how to value it. And when that practice hits scale and you've got your organization, whatever thousands or hundreds or tens of people that are in your organization, working with their own mind to downregulate, to understand how their thoughts and emotions are impacting their present experience. It's a game changer. And it is one of the big practices to unlock. To me, it also signals a leader really cares about you. It's a trifecta. You just hit it. Leaders who are aware of their quality of life and leaders who have empathy for the quality of life of others would only install or help introduce practices to help people with the anxiety, the frustration, the fatigue that is literally asking people to sacrifice the best years of their life, sacrificing their relationship with their loved ones at home, sacrificing the relationship with their children, missing, missing, missing. For what? For somebody else's riches and gains. We can do better by saying, okay, listen, your life matters. Let's throw this work-life balancing out the window. Let's work on being fully present wherever we are. 
not 38% engaged here, 38% engaged at home. Let's be fully present wherever we are. That is a game changer. I want to talk about recovery a little more because the word may sound obvious, but I have a friend, a high performer in the consulting world, and she was told that you know she has the watch now and is measured, and but she sees that her recovery is not good at all. But she thought it might look like just take a night off, watch some TV, rest a bit, but that isn't true recovery. People may think they know what recovery means, but given the amount of stress and your point about the balance, what does recovery really look like? So if we double click, I'll give four categories of recovery, and then we can talk about a general strategy. This is going to sound very, oh, like grandma could have said this, what I'm about to say, but there's good science that will support this. Sleep is the big rock to get in the container. And we can talk lots about the science and application of sleep. I've found now that people don't need more information about sleep. They need to almost compete with their schedule to prioritize quality sleep. So we need about 90 minutes to begin the shutdown period to prime our bodies for sleep. If you need 90 minutes prior to eight hours of sleep, if that's the goal, we're not watching TV or we're not doing things that are stimulating towards the end of the night. We're actually beginning to downregulate so we can fall asleep in a healthy way. That feels like a stretch for most people because people feel like they have an AM shift where they are in meetings all day and then a PM shift where they're answering emails at night. We will be more efficient. Science is very clear that when we prioritize sleep, we give ourselves a chance for the duration of sleep. The quality of sleep is a different matter. To get into deep sleep, we must do hard things throughout the day that send signals to our brain that we are taxing our body. But chronic stress is not a tax. I'm talking about acute stress. This is where exercise and fitness pay dividends to sleep. On the days that you train your body, you move at a level that is intense for you. It's a little challenging for you. And if you don't know what that means, there's lots of coaches that can help you there. So if you do something that wakes up your body with some physical challenge, when you go to sleep, your body says, right, we need to repair. So that's what the deep sleep is about. When you strain your mind, so to speak, and you're focusing in deep ways during the day, at night, your body goes, we need some REM sleep. So quality deep sleep and quality REM sleep come from acute stressors throughout the day that are accidentally designed, but if you're ahead of the game, formally designed to stress yourself in those ways. Sleep and acute stress work well together. That's only one. Let me just hit the (laughs) other ones really quickly. It's eating well, hydrating well moving well, the exercise, I just talked about that, and then thinking well. So thinking well is really about the science of optimism, the science of mindfulness, looking forward to your future and being aware of your current experience in the present moment. And both of those are skills that can be practiced. So in the corporate experience that you've had to date, would you say there's opportunity across all of these in the talent or the professionals you've worked with, or do any stand out? Is it equal opportunity? For the recovery strategies? Yeah, from what you've seen. Yes, there is a craving. People are wanting to not be so exhausted. There is a craving to have a sense of vitality and vibrance when they wake up in the morning. And by the way, the first 15 minutes of when you wake up is not a good signal of the energy levels that you have. So it takes about 10, 15 minutes to get a truer signal of your energy systems. But there's a craving for that. So out of those four practices that I just talked about of recovery, 
when people hear them, there's a natural gravitation towards one of them. And you might already know, like, I need more vegetables. You might know that. And that might be something simple to do. I'm a hydrate. A hydration. Yeah. Hydration is so important for body function. To be concrete on your answer, no, there's not one that people are more connected to. Each individual knows where they need a little bit more help. I'll frame it one more way. When we take an Olympic team and we go out and we're going to do a month camp, high stress, intense month camp, you're away from your family, you're working as hard as you've ever worked from a doing perspective and a thinking perspective, and it wears on people. That's by design. We want to make sure that we have at least two of those recovery practices as a stable backstop, if you will. If we can get three on, three of those things to work really well, good. We're going to be able to endure and create some adaptations, and we're going to actually explore some upper limits of our capabilities. If we get four, we're in a whole different level. In the corporate world, I'd say work to get two of those to be in place as a backstop for you. Pick two of them and be world-class with them. There's no reason that you can't be. So let's say you can't get your sleep right because you've got a weird shift, a newborn, you've got whatever it might be, you can't get sleep right right now. No problems. Double down on two of the others or maybe all three and make them great. If you're not sure what to do on nutrition, there are people that are highly sophisticated in this area that will help you. Now, my experience with nutritional coaching is that you only need a handful of sessions with a nutritional coach to understand better for you. The next level up is to do what we do in elite sport and we're doing in big business right now, not necessarily just big business. It's called a nutritional blood draw. There's a blood draw that will take place that is looking at nutritional markers to help you understand the choices that you're making, the micro choices sometimes that you're making. Is it working? And that might sound expensive, but it ranges between $500 and $1,500. Once a year, I don't know how I would be informed on the choices that I make without that data backstop. That's not complicated either. And there's lots of resources you can find. So these five are brilliant. And I love the focus of picking a couple. I'm curious because you talked about habits earlier. There's always that difference between knowing what to do and actually doing it. How do you get into the doing? What do you do to just get going? There's a whole field, subdiscipline in psychology about habit formation, which you're probably familiar with. Here's a couple gems, if you will. The first is you have more available willpower in the morning. So if you want to start to develop a new habit, I would suggest use it when you have more willpower, which is in the morning. But if you're not a morning person and you are ripping and running just to get out the door for whatever reasons, no problem. Pick later in the day. But you do need to schedule it. And when you schedule this new habit formation, the other bit of science is to anchor it to an already existing habit. So here's the formula, according to research. After I blank, I will blank. Let's stay with the morning theme. After I brush my teeth, I will do six minutes of meditation. So after I blank, I will blank. And the second blank is the new habit. The third bit of information is you want to activate your reward system. So you want to involve your emotional center and your reward system with the new habit formation. For example, let's say that you wanted to start running in the mornings. So the night before, I would suggest that you take your shoes and you put them by the front door. And when you do that, you celebrate like a wild person. You say to yourself, look at me, I'm taking steps towards a better life. And you might turn to your family like, look, I'm kicking butt here. Here we go. Tomorrow morning, I'm getting after it. You celebrate right there. You activate your reward system with a very small step that you've taken. Then when you put your shoes on in the morning, do the same thing. 
And then when you're running, do the same thing. And when you come home and you're going to shower off, you do the same thing. So you activate the reward system as opposed to the other narrative, which is like, this is so hard. I'm running out of time. This isn't going to work. Purposely design an experience that is engaging. Those are three ways to think about it. And then the last, this is the heaviest, if you will, if you're having a hard time changing your habit, you probably haven't touched the pain that you're trying to solve enough. You haven't probably spent enough time to get down into the real suffering of it. When you really sit with the suffering of why you want to make the change, when it matters to you, you'll do whatever it takes. Just like love. When you love somebody and they really matter to you, you'll do whatever it takes for them. Spot on. I want to just go back to something. When you talked earlier about craft, body, and mind, my experiences in the business world, craft, we always got. You wanted to develop people in their craft. We always wanted to be better as individual contributors and performers. Body came later. and We said, oh, wellness matters, but it was more physical wellness and body. Mind seems to lag. And yet in the sports world, if you think about over the past year in particular, in the Olympics and everywhere, mind seems to also be coming big time into its own to say, if I'm not in the right place, I'm not stepping up. Has that been shifting? What are your thoughts on that? There's been a shift probably over the last 20 years. The first shift was to use the psychology of excellence to understand how people can explore the upper reaches of their capabilities, how they can use their mental skills and psychological frameworks to be great. There was a bit of a excitement around that. And then it started to swing like, wait a minute, we also need wellness. There's a well-being component here. And the intersection that I'm sitting at is that unique intersection between psychological skills of excellence and well-being. Guess what? They are the same skills. There's no separate set of skills for well-being that is different than excellence. It's a really exciting time. And I couldn't be more hopeful about our future because our leaders, our cultural leaders are waving their arms and saying, I can do these triple flips and I can do this stuff. My body, my technique is incredible, but it doesn't really work if I don't have my mind in place. And I'm tired. I'm tired of doing this old way, this extraction model, and there's a better way. We would know from science that that is a true statement. And we're going to start seeing that trickle down in an accelerated way in business as well, which is an exciting time. And it's a hard time for people. And that's why we're starting to see this paradigm shift. The genie's out of the bottle. I'm not doing it the way I used to do it. People are not going back to work the same way. The genie is totally out of the bottle. You shared with us your earlier career journey and how you got into the brilliant path you've had so far. Is there a suggestion or some guidance or some insights that have impacted you along the way that you would share with us? There was a mentor of mine, still alive today. So this was a moment that happened in the past. He says, Mike, you are hardworking. You are incredibly conscientious and you care too much still about what other people think of you. And I want to just say something to you, Mike. So grab my attention. We're in a restaurant, so it was kind of noisy when he said it. And he leans in, and in this way of wisdom that he has, he says, you know you really matter to people in your life, right? I said, yeah. He then follows on quickly and says, you also know that you don't really matter in this history of the world. Can you hold those two together? Can you be connected to both of those at the same time? That you matter and you don't really matter. It's the Zen parable. I leaned back and I was like, that felt really refreshing. To be the best man that I can be to my loved ones and to my community and to know that in the big picture, please, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of hundreds of thousands of years, 
that perspective matters a lot to me. What I've come to research also is that I found that the number one constrictor for human potential, the number one threat to human potential in modern times is the fear of other people's opinions. It's no longer the saber-toothed tiger, dangerous alleys, dangerous humans, while they do exist without question. But the most pervasive constrictor of potential is what is she thinking of me or what might she think of me or what will he think if I don't do it well? And so embracing this idea of can I replace the fear of people's opinions with loving them unconditionally and working from that place has been an incredible freedom and the perspective that my mentor offered me is you matter and you really don't. And so get over yourself, Gervais. <laughs> I love that. I think that's so brilliant. Michael, we have covered so much and it's been so fascinating. It's clearly spot on to what's needed. You've been incredibly practical with us. It's inspired me. So I hope this catches on like wildfire for leaders, for individuals, for organizations. It'll be immensely powerful. Thank you so much. Thank you for including me in your mission. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Thank you.